Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. The battle, and let's just kind of define what the battle is. First, the battle is this. The enemy is perpetuating lies to us about who we are and who God is. That's the work of the enemy. That's one front of the battle. The other side of the battle is God is constantly speaking to us his promises of who we are and who he is. And this battle doesn't happen in some foreign field. It's not happening, you know, on, in cyber world. It's happening in the three inches between your ears. That's where the battle is happening. Right here in your mind. But it's amazing that this little battleground in your head will determine whether you live 60, 80, 90 years in a victorious lifestyle or a miserable life. And then it will also determine what eternity will look like for you. The battleground of those three inches. Some of you, more than three. Some of you, a couple of, no, I'm kidding. The enemy is after your thinking. Because your thinking determines your behavior. Listen to me. Your thinking determines your behavior. Your behavior determines your character. And I'm not talking to you as an expert because I've won all these battles. I'm talking to you this morning as a fellow soldier fighting out a lot of junk in my life. And not, listen, sometimes the battle is not against sin. It's against old ways of thinking. There's two ways there's the way of the master, Jesus, and there's the ways of the world. We know the story. Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And what does he say about the narrow way? Few there be that find it. It's not that it's not accessible to everyone, but you know what usually happens when people find a way is they're looking for that. You're not going to just stumble on to a great life in following Jesus one day. You have to be looking for it. Proverbs says it like this. Listen, search for wisdom. Seek for it with all your heart. Search for it like it's fine gold. And see, man, Stephen, that just sounds like a lot of work. Welcome to the real world. It is a lot of work to follow Jesus. And if you're like me and you're really hard-headed, it's even more work. To follow Jesus. Okay? But that's where the battle is happening. This battle begins and ends in our thoughts. And it's working to pull us into a way of living that is focused on momentary problems and momentary successes. Rather than being focused on the eternal work of God making himself visible through us. Let me say that again. This battle begins and ends in our thoughts. And it's working to pull us away from the eternal perspective of who we're to become in Jesus. A lot of times the battle happens before you wake up and it's continuing after you go to bed. Distractions all the time to keep you focused on the problem at hand rather than the greater war that's being waged. The offenses in your life. The way that you've been treated. Planting lies in your head about who God is and who you are. We daily have a choice to live 
for our personal pleasures, ambitions, and goals, or to live to be saved from the destruction that is caused by the pursuit of those things. How many of y'all like vacations? Right? You know what's great about a vacation? If you do it right, I've never been successful at doing it really well, is you can forget about all the junk that you leave behind. Right? You know, when I'm on vacation, I'm not a great example to follow on this. I'm dreading coming back because there's going to be more junk to deal with when I get back. <coughs> and I say this because a lot of times that anticipation of I just need to get away is a false hope. The way to have success in life is learning how to fight in the battle and find peace in the middle of the storm, not to get out of the storm. And I think a lot of time in our Christian uh, Americanized theology, we keep putting the hope of happiness in the eternal. When Jesus clearly said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. What if there was a way for you to not escape to find joy, but to stay in constant joy no matter what's happening around you? And I know y'all are like, oh, yeah, it sounds really idealistic, Stephen. What's the catch? Where do I write the check to? That's not the point. There is a place, a discipline in life, disciplines in life that you can begin to put into your daily calendar that will create for you a sense of peace, rest, and fulfillment when the world is falling apart. Listen, Jesus, his whole life was on the way to a torturous death. He never once complained about it. He knew from the day one, I'm going to die. But not just die anyway. The most horrific, torturous way a man can die, that's where I'm going. And I'm kind of happy about it. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Listen, you and I can either say, well, one day I'm going to get away from all this to get pleasure, or I'm going to find the pleasure of becoming the son of God, the daughter of God that I can be, and that's what's going to sustain me. It's a shift in our paradigm, right? We always put happiness on the other side of death. But what if... Happiness is in dying to yourself daily. What if? And I think I can show you from the scriptures, that's where we're intended to be. As we move into this concept of waging war and fighting and staying in a place of victory, we have to assess how we got to the place that we're at. And let me just give you a little clue, because I struggle with it all the time. You're in the mess that you're at right now in your life, like me, because you have old ways of thinking. There's nobody else responsible for the drama in your life. Now, can people influence, bring negative things into your life? Absolutely. But I'm in the mess I'm in many times because I'm hard-headed, and God is trying to tell me, change the way you think about this. Right? Am I the only one? Ken's here. I'm, there's two of us. Right. <laughs> I'll only pick on him because... He's the closest. You know what I'm saying? Can't run. <laughs> um, how do we get to the way we're at in our problems in life? And this is not a depression thing. I'm just saying, you got to sit back and think, okay, how did I get here? 
And we can attribute it to, listen, struggles in our childhood, you know, father wounds. We can attribute it, and I'm not diminishing those things, but I'm choosing to think the way I think, and sometimes I need some help changing my thinking, right? What do we mean when we talk about this way of salvation? The way that Jesus spoke of was a lifestyle. And it always baffled me growing up as a Christian. I would read so much things in the scriptures, and it always addressed, you know, my thinking, but it never got into addressing my behavior. I mean, of course, we learned the list of things not to do as a Christian. Here's all the bad sins. Stay away from those. But what do you do if you just live a lifestyle of avoiding sin? What else is there to do? Because I don't read in the scriptures that the apostles really struggled with the sin nature. They struggled against opposition to them living the lifestyle of following Jesus. So if your whole Christian life is wrapped around, I'm just going to make this brief, if it's wrapped around fighting sin, it could be your thinking hasn't changed. You're trying to make your body behave in a way that you don't believe is really working. Does that make sense? When you begin to change your thinking, then your behavior follows suit with that. And you actually technically change both at the same time. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. The way of following Jesus, he's given us some tools to change our behavior. And as we change behavior, our thinking will follow also. And a lot of times we get it backwards. You know, I'm going to change my thinking, then behavior will change. Sometimes behavior has to come first, right? And I want to give you some tools this morning of modification of your behavior that will impact the way you think. Sound good? Okay, move on with me here. The way that Jesus is speaking of. If I look at the Gospels and I look at the life of Jesus, in literally three and a half years, he single-handedly changed the face of the world. You say, well, Stephen, we're not Jesus, but that's our example. And it's not just Jesus. I'm going to go through the list of patriarchs, men of God, women of God, who found this way of living and this way of living that I'm going to present to you this morning can be just as dynamically impactful in your life if you choose to follow it. And I'm not talking about salvation. Let me just be really clear. I'm not talking about give your life to Jesus and that's the way. When we speak of the word salvation, because this concept of salvation is only mentioned five times in the New Testament. And every time it's mentioned, it speaks to a way or a livelihood, a lifestyle of being delivered from the judgment of God or from danger. So there's a lifestyle God wants you to adopt that can deliver you from the judgments of God. Now, the judgment of God comes to judge sin, right? To judge wickedness. But there is a lifestyle where the righteousness of God is so en encompasses who you are that you escape the judgment of God, not out of fear, but because you know the God who's judging. Does that make sense? Okay, let me show you these couple of passages. This concept of salvation, let me define. Salvation is defined in the New Testament as the instrument or means that produces a state of being preserved from danger. Salvation, let me read it again, is defined as the instrument or means that produces the state of being preserved from danger or judgment. And the five times that it's mentioned, this idea of salvation, a lifestyle of salvation or being saved or the way First time it's mentioned is in Luke chapter 2, verse 30. You know the story. When Jesus is a little boy, uh, just born, eight days old, Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple to be circumcised, as is a custom among the Jews. And as he's brought to the temple, there's two prophets, uh, Simeon, the prophet, and I think the other one is Anna, 
uh, and they both give a prophetic declaration over the baby, Jesus. Uh, unknown, they're unknown to Mary and Joseph until after the fact. And Simeon in this, he says in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, the prophet Simeon, who awaited Christ's birth, he said, my eyes have seen the salvation, and the Greek word there is soterion, the salvation or the way by which God will save the world. There's a way that he saw, a lifestyle that Jesus would introduce that would save the world. A lot of times we read that passage in Luke 2, 30, Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 30, and we think, well, he's speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection. He is, but it's not just the death and resurrection. It's his whole life. Jesus would introduce to us a livelihood, a means of salvation that would save the world, right? The next time it's mentioned is Luke chapter 6, verse, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 6. John the Baptist declares when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, all flesh will see the soterion, the way of salvation, because the Lamb of God. All flesh will see it, right? And actually, I'm sorry, in Luke, let me, let me, I kind of missed that one. Luke chapter 3, verse 6, John's declaration of who Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's telling us the pathway of livelihood that Jesus will lead that will show us how to acquire this salvation, right? It's funny, and I'll take a pause here from, from the notes and just think. This idea that following Jesus is just a matter of confessing sins, going to the cross, and identifying with Christ's death and resurrection is the life that we have is such a limited view of the gospel. In fact, do you know that the cross, the symbol of the cross, did not denote what Christianity was or didn't simple, uh, symbolize Christianity until about 400 AD. There were no crosses in Christian uh, art, literature, pictures, paintings. There were no crosses. The cross was only brought in around 400 AD as the symbol of dying to self because the shift went from Christians have a life of following Jesus to Christians just believe in his death and resurrection. And that shift, in that shift, that paradigm shift, we lost the way of what it means to follow Jesus. We begin to minimize it to just a mere confession, not a life. Right? Listen, following Jesus is not a mere confession. It's a life. And if you think for a moment, well, you know, I just prayed this little prayer but then I lived my whole life for myself, but I really love Jesus, and he's got to let me in because I said the magic words, abracadabra. Listen, if you don't give him your life, he can't give you his life, and his life is called eternal life. It's an exchange. You take on his life, his means of salvation, or you live out your own means of salvation. You still with me? I'm not diminishing the cross. I'm just saying we have taken profound truth of salvation and minimized it to a prayer. A lifestyle of giving yourself to Jesus to a three-sentence prayer. The prayer is important. I'm not minimizing that. But what I'm telling you is if that's all you've done, you're not walking the way. You might be identifying as one, 
But that's the big day when the surprises come, when Jesus will look at so many and say, listen, you called me Lord, but you did not do the things that I told you. You didn't walk in this way. And he'll say to them, the sheep and the goats, and the end of Matthew, depart from me. And you know how he defines them? You workers of iniquity. People who live for themselves are not living for Jesus. Don't worry, the news gets better from this point. You with me? Okay. The next passage where this concept of salvation is spoken is Acts chapter 28. Paul turns, the Jews reject the way of Jesus, and he says to them, listen, the Lord is no longer calling us to the Jews, but we are taking, in Acts 28, verse 28, Paul turns his ministry from the Jews to the Gentiles after persecution and says, the salvation of God, this way of life, has been sent to the Gentiles. The next time it's used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, which we'll look at this text as we go on here. Paul says, take on the helmet of salvation or the, the mindset of this way of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Literally that phrase, and, and I know a lot of studies have been done on Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. But when he says put on the helmet of salvation, he's saying put this way of saving, this way of salvation into your thinking. Right? There's a way, a means by which we are redeemed, a lifestyle we choose that causes the redemption of God to be manifest in our thinking and then reflected in our life. The last time it's used is in Titus chapter 2, 11. I'll read it to you. He says, as Paul is writing to Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation, the way of salvation, has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. What is he saying? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What is he speaking of? Jesus. The means of salvation, the life he lived, has appeared to all of us. And what did Jesus teach us in his lifestyle? He taught us that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope, which is what? His return. This is the lifestyle we're to pursue. All these passages speak to a way of life which Jesus offered to us by the virtue of his example, his livelihood, and his indwelling presence. This is not something we do by ourselves. He puts in us his spirit, but we have a part of obeying and putting into practice in our life the following of the way of salvation. John chapter 14, verse 6, if you want to change Look there with me. John chapter 14, verse 6. And this is a discussion happening in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are there. It's the Last Supper. And ironically or coincidentally, John is the only one that records most of Jesus' dialogue in this upper room. And he's the one sitting closest to Jesus, right? So maybe he's the only one that heard everything, right? The rest of them are kind of losing their hearing a little bit. But as he's sitting there and Jesus is telling them, listen, I'm about to go prepare a place for you. What is he speaking of? Salvation, so that where I am, you may be also. And then he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And then the disciples kind of, you know, thinking, what is he talking about? Is he going to build a house somewhere in heaven? And they say, Lord, tell us, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, the guy that popped the question, have I been with you so long and you don't know that I and the Father, we are one? That I am in him and the Father is in me. That's the dwelling place I'm telling you about, right? And they're kind of scratching their head. Okay, so he's not talking about a place. 
He's talking about a relationship. How do we get there? God, we don't know how to get there, this place or the relationship. We're lost on both. And then Jesus says to them, go look at it in John 14. He says to them, listen, I am the way, the pathway by which you get to the Father relationally. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, here's what's crazy about our theology in America. And I, I you know, read all these nerdy books. We have spent a lot of time teaching people the truth and the life that God wants us to have. But we've not spent enough time talking about the way to get there. You can know all the truth, but if you don't know how to apply it in your life, you're lost as a goose. Right? There is a way of salvation. And Jesus emphatically puts that at the first of the three identifiers of who and what he does. Who he is and what he does. He said, Philip, I am the way. The means through which you reach the Father. I am the truth, the knowledge that you need to know the Father. I am the life, the lifestyle that you need. So when we look at that, how do we respond do we, how can we duplicate Christ's lifestyle to get to the Father? That's the big question. Right? How many of y'all have ever asked the question, you don't have to raise your hand, how do I get closer to the God? How do I get closer to God? And here's what usually people will say. Well, go to church, read your Bible, and a lot of other activities, which we try but at the end of the day, sometimes we feel like there's got to be another way. Right? Am I the only guy that struggles with that? The rest of you guys are figured it out? There's got to be another way. Or maybe the way that I'm being told isn't the full picture of how to get to the Father. What's the lifestyle? Okay, well, let's look at like, Jesus' lifestyle. He was born in Bethlehem. We all know the story. We just celebrated Christmas. He's taken from Bethlehem, went to Egypt. He was there until he's about two years old. After two years old, he goes back to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, of course, the wise men come, and they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the stimulus check from the Far East, right? That carries Mary and Joseph for quite a while financially. And then finally, they get to the place where Jesus uh, is 12 years old, and they go to the temple, right? As and if you read Luke's gospel, it's their custom to go. So the first thing is Jesus had a custom taught to him by his parents to, day, to weekly, or however the intervals were, regularly go to the temple. Let me rephrase that, the synagogue, because there's a difference. The synagogue is the place where they teach you who God is. The temple is where you go to make sacrifices. So he had a regular custom, first indicator of what the way of Jesus is, a regular custom to go into the house of God to be taught who God is. That was his way. That's how he started. And then we don't hear anything about Jesus from the age of 12 to the age of 30. And then he went, we all know the story, right? He appears on the scene, and when he appears on the scene, he appears by the Jordan River next to his cousin John to be baptized. And after baptism, comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and says, this is my beloved son. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased comes out of the water, and the Bible says, quickly Jesus went or was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
So there was a regular pattern of going to the synagogue, hearing God's voice, obedience and baptism, making a commitment to follow the voice of the Father, baptism, which was a tradition among the Jews of devotion. When you were baptized in Jewish culture, it was saying, I'm committing my life to follow. We got that one down. You know what the next step is? Seclusion and fasting. Every major patriarch in your, in your Bible had seasons in their life of pulling away from people and fasting. You know what? What's horrible about living in Southeast Texas is when people say the word fasting, it's like a cuss word. Because the first thing that comes to your mind is etouffee and steaks and boudin and all these images start dancing in our head of, I don't think this is the Lord. I think there has to be another way besides this way of dying to appetite. It's so incredibly astounding to me, and I'm not saying it because I've mastered fasting, but like asking people to change the way they eat in response to the way that Jesus offers to us is like asking them to commit high treason against their favorite restaurant. It's hard. Listen, I like to eat. I like to eat. But that's not the way Jesus offered to us. The first thing he offered is learn or follow me and learn this process of dying to appetite. Because listen, the moment you think your spirituality is disconnected from your body, you're creating a false sense of righteousness. You're creating a false sense of control in your life. A lot of times we think, well, just in my mind, I love the Lord. I'm going to fast and pray in my thinking and be devoted in my heart. But I really don't have to do it physically, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to live a fasted lifestyle. No, Jesus fasted 40 days. And even throughout his life, you see that he went and fasted short periods of time, three days, two days, whatever, went about by himself. And all this solitude and fasting, guess what it did? It put him in tune with the Father, right? Because he says it at the, at the end of his fast, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I'll probably say this a number of times. Fasting doesn't bring you closer to God. It just destroys all of you that keeps you from God. Let me say that again. Fasting doesn't bring you closer to God. It just removes the things that are keeping you from God. So Jesus lived a fasted life. What else do we see in Jesus' life? He fasted, and then he spent a lot of time praying, right? And praying for him wasn't like go to a nice church, have this incredible sound system, incredible worship team, and music, and just the epiphany or, or the, the motions and movements of, of worship that just <coughs> emotionally drive your soul. I love those things. But many times when Jesus decided to pray, he went up into the mountains by himself, fasting and praying and getting alone with the Father. Because then you have to deal with those real things that are bothering your heart and wrong ways of thinking that are destroying your life. Jesus said to the disciples, this is the way. And we can continue on through his life, but I'm going to run out of time here. But we look through the patterns of his life and we can glean some principles of the way in which we can follow Jesus. Move on with me. 
This way is living regularly in the consciousness of God's guiding voice. That's what Jesus is telling us through his life. The way that he offered in John chapter 14, verse 6, is living regularly with the consciousness of God's guiding voice. In the early church, believers were called the people of the way. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Acts 24, 24. I'm sorry, 24, 14. And they were known as the people of the way because they followed these specific lifestyle choices. Let me move on here. Paul speaks of this numerous times and probably one of the best passages, I would say the best, one of the clear passages is Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 as he's talking about moving in this lifestyle of the way. And, he's, and he likes to allude a lot of times metaphorically to the concept of fighting and battle and sports. And so in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, Paul writes and he says this, and it's a little lengthy passage, but I want you to listen to the whole thing. You with me? Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's an old King James word, wiles of the devil. I'm going to talk about that little phrase here in just a second. But stand firm against the wiles of the devil or the pathways of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, so he's repeating himself, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. So, notice here that he's not teaching an escapism. He didn't say put on the old armor of God so when the evil day comes, you're gone. He's saying when the evil day comes, you know how to stand, right? Therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Let me, let me look at that phrase, evil day, with you real quick. The word evil day literally means, that word evil is translated, poverty laden with care, sorrowful, unhappy, unintermitted toil, carrying no suggestion of results. That's the day we're in. (laughs) Right? Let me read it for you again. The word evil, when he says evil day, is defined as poverty laden with care, sorrowful, unhappy, Unintermitted toil, carrying no suggestion of results. We're in an evil day. But the evil of the day doesn't have to change the victory you possess if you know how to stand in the evil day. Let's read on here. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I wish I had time to unpack all that, but we're going to move on until we get to what we need to do. Above all, listen to what he says here, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now watch what he says here, verse 17. And take the helmet, and here's that word again, helmet of soterion, the way of salvation. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Watching, weren't you, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Paul is saying, this is the lifestyle. You're in a battle. Put on some armor. Learn how to use this armor. And he defines the armor, and there's plenty of great studies and books about each part of the armor and what that means for us, putting on the righteousness of God, which means what? In this little battlefield, I have to put on this mindset that when I gave my life to Jesus and committed to follow his way, I was immediately made righteous. 
And then he says, take up the shield of faith so you may be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is the shield of faith? It's this constant defense of this is what I believe when the lies of the enemy come and say this is what is really the truth. This is what's happening in your world. This is what's happening in your body. This is what's happening in your finances. And you have to say, this is the truth. My God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. I will prosper and be in health, even as my soul prospers. And this war that's going on, it's a war of words, but it's a war of beliefs underneath those. The enemy is trying to convince you to believe what he's saying, and God is trying to convince you with his word to stand firm in what he's already said. That's the war that's going on. And this way of life is not an easy one. It's not one where we just wave a white flag of peace and say, okay, God's going to take care of it all. I don't have to do anything. That's the first way to get killed, right? I understand reliance on the grace of God, but if you don't do something, you're going to get shot, and it's going to be painful. And then your anger for inactivity is going to turn against the God who can help you and already offered you a way to win victory. Okay, Paul warns us that the evil day is coming and that you and I have to walk in this way of soterion, salvation. He says, put on the helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the Spirit. A lot of us love taking up the sword of the Spirit. We like to quote those three-word three phrases that come from some scripture somewhere that some preacher preached. We like to spout out the word of God, but we don't believe it in our head. You have to put into your mind, this way of life is what I'm going to follow. And then the word of God becomes alive. Okay? How does following this way affect my life? Because our lives are mostly constructed, and this is, I'm guilty, mostly constructed to increase activities which bring us pleasure and decrease activities which produce pain, we can easily become pleasure-focused. Kind of what we've been talking all morning. So easy for us to pursue the good life, the American dream. And listen, there's a problem with the American dream. It's about you and not about Jesus. It's about your happiness, your children, your well-being. And listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't hope for good things. We should hope for good things. But at the end of the day, is that his hope for us? A lot of times we, we draw parallel comparisons between Jesus and Santa Claus. He always wants the best for me. And everything's going to be, you know, brought to my front door in a nicely wrapped bow and box. And when I pray, it's going to appear. Whether it's through the chimney, chimney or the prayer line, one way or the other, it's coming. And there's nothing I have to do. I just have to sit around and wait and be asleep at the right time. And bam, it's going to happen. Listen, that's not the way Jesus offered. The way that he offered was put on the full armor. Take up the salvation mindset. Get ready to fight. In Paul's passage here, which we skipped over, you remember that phrase here where he says, uh, chapter 6, verse 11 of Ephesians, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now let me tell you what that little phrase, wiles of the devil. In the Greek, that word literally translates the pathways of the enemy. Now, what is he talking about? If you go into the study of that word, the pathway, he's not talking about some distant road somewhere. He's talking about in your thinking. So here's how the pathways of the enemy works. This is very important to note. 
Many of us, your brain gets wired into the way it will think by the time you hit adolescence, 12 years old, roughly, right? Girls, I think it's a little bit earlier because they mature sooner than men. Sorry, guys, just science. I'm just telling you what it is, right? But your brain begins to associate trains of thought, right? So I'll give you a little, a little example. <clears throat> when I was a kid, hey, there's some friends over here that I forgot to point out. Way in the back over there is a guy who looks like Santa Claus, Raymond and his wife, Susan. Well, I'm glad to have them with us. They've been here the last few weeks. Susan and Raymond, uh, Susan was my Sunday school teacher. So any bad theology? <laughs> right over there. Raymond, he just taught me how to kill squirrels and cook them. I'm not sure that's appetizing as boudin and all that stuff, but they've known me since I was a little guy. The reason I bring it up, not that just came to my mind. As a child, you are very effectively, very consistently routing ways of thinking in your mind by associating behaviors around you with ways to think. For example, when I was a kid, we were very poor, and we lived in a trailer, and one of the downsides of, of, of living in a little trailer and <coughs> in poverty is usually they're in communities or in areas where they're not very you know, clean or whatever. And so we always had roaches. It was just a natural part of life, right? And so you wake up in the morning, you turn on the lights, all the roaches go to their hiding place, you live life, turn off the lights, they all come out. I know that sounds kind of gross. I'm sorry, that was just the world I grew up in, right? Especially in Southeast Texas with all the pine trees around you, you're going to have some roaches. No matter how clean you are, there's one going to get in your house somehow, creep across the floor, say, hello, how are you doing? You're going to freak out. You know what I'm saying? You bomb your house and the three houses around you. You know what I'm saying? But as a kid, you know, I just got used to roaches, right? I just got used to it. Now, we didn't eat them or nothing, you know what I'm saying? We cleaned up after ourselves. Don't get all weird on me, right? But you just knew don't leave dishes in the sink overnight, sweep the floors, pick up all the crumbs, and whatever the roaches didn't get, the ants would find. Just saying, welcome to Southeast Texas. Come armed with all the spray, eat you can, right? So we just grew accustomed to it. And, and the roaches we had in our little trailer, they were little ones. They were like this big. They weren't like the big ones. They were like the little ones. So the little ones are harder to kill, right? So we just quit trying after a while. But over time, you know, we kind of, uh, as a child, every time I'd see a roach, I would associate that with poverty. Just poverty. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I remember one time it was so... Uh, impressed on my, on my um, heart, my dad <coughs> was pastoring a church, and we were invited, as many times we were, to people's houses to eat, and uh, we went to this uh, couple's house, and they had a lot of kids, and uh, we weren't there to, fun, to just have fun, and so it was, I think it was after church one day, we went over to their house, and it, they lived in a trailer just like we did, and they opened the trailer, and dude, there were so many roaches. Their roaches were not afraid of them. They just camped out everywhere. And my little eyes, I I'm probably like six years old, seven years old, I was like, are they going to eat here? And like, it just blew me away how comfortable they were. And my mind, I began to associate, this is okay. Right? I know everybody are thinking, oh, that's so disgusting. But in my mind, it wasn't a big deal. 
And then, of course, life went on. I grew up. We began to be successful financially. The Lord began to bless us. And we began to move out of we moved out of the trailer situation into a house situation, and then a better house, a better house, better house, better house, blah blah. blah. Moved up financially, socioeconomically, whatever. And it's amazing, like, when I go visit places, friends, whatever, even in their nice house, and I see a roach, all of I think, man, they must be poor. It's not real. But you know what? I'm making the association, you know, because that pathway has been worked in my thinking. In fact, the word pathway there in Ephesians chapter 6, it literally is a word picture. Like, when you go out to the woods and you see a trail, how does that trail get developed? People walk on it over and over and over, and it creates a hardened pathway. He says here, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the production of pathways, the wiles of the devil. The enemy, from the day that you were cognitively aware, has been working pathways into your thinking of, you're ugly, you're fat. You don't mean anything. You're an idiot. And through the voice sometimes of people that are joking and funny and harsh parents, he's plowing or trampling down those pathways. So when you become an adult, it just takes a trigger, bam, and you make a false association. Right? He says, put on the whole armor of God so you may be able to stand against the wiles, the pathways, the points which the enemy tries to come into your thinking, the pathway of the devil. How do I do that? I have to reroute my thinking. And listen, that takes a long time to reroute your thinking. But I want to give you some tools this morning to create new pathways in your life, in your thinking. Okay? You with me still? We're almost done. It's only 1123. My goodness. Let me jump ahead here. How do we enter into this pathway? First, like I just told you, we have to recognize the pathways of the enemy in our thinking. And listen, this is where the voice of the Holy Spirit is so important. He'll point out to us many times, hey, this is not the right way to think. This is not the truth which you believe. We're at a time right now where what God is saying about our nation and what the enemy is saying are just kaboom, colliding, right? And you're going to have to go, not to the most famous prophet you can find, and I'm not against the prophetic, right? I believe in the prophets. But you have to go to the secret place and say, God, what are you saying? And you need a word from the Lord for yourself and your family and your life. Because here's what I know. There's always somebody who will give you a prophetic word to match what you want to believe. Listen, I've given prophetic words and been dead wrong. Dead wrong. You know what I'm saying? I've been given prophetic words and I've been 100% right. Those are the ones we talk about, right? But I can't expect people to rely on my voice when there's the greater voice of the Father that they're supposed to be going to every day. Right? And so the enemy wants to come in and just create and sustain and keep these pathways and we have to make a stand against them. Okay, let's move on here. First, how do you enter the way? First, recognizing the old pathways of thinking. 
But it's not enough. Following the way of Jesus means willfully subjection of your body to the disciplines of selflessness. And this is where it gets fun. We don't willfully subject our body to the disciplines of selflessness to attain spirituality, but rather to diminish carnality. And that's a big thing. We're not subjecting our body to these disciplines I'm about to discuss with you because it makes us more spiritual. It just makes us less carnal, right? That's, I know, the the toe-stomping part that nobody likes. But listen, it's the way of life Jesus offered to us. In his book, Dallas Willard, which I would strongly encourage everybody to read, a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. I'm a Dallas Willard fan. He says, one of the greatest deceptions is the idea that all that really matters is our internal feelings, ideas, beliefs, and intentions. It is this mistake about the psychology of the human being that more than anything, more than anything else, divorces salvation from life, leaving us a head full of vital truths about God and a body unable to fend off sin. When we divorce the way we think from the way we behave, it creates a heady Christian that has no power. The Bible says it like this. In the last days, they will have a form of godliness but deny the power. What does that mean? That we're saying there's no power? It's saying they have no power. That's the prediction of what will happen in the last days. When we separate Spiritual livelihood with personal behavior. There's a book that I love to read, and I've read it a few times. It's uh, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. You ever read that book? Probably the best fiction book I've read in my life. Screwtape Letters, if you don't know this story, it's about this master demon named uh, Screwtape, and he has an apprentice demon named Wormwood, and it's from the other side. So basically, the story is how can they get this Christian or unbeliever, how can they keep him from finding Jesus and following the way of salvation? And it's a discussion between Screwtape and Wormwood, letters that they write back and forth, of how to keep this person in bondage and away from Christians and away from Jesus, right? So it's kind of a, a little flip in your mind of, of what's happening because everything they think is good is bad and everything they, th- they say is bad is really good. Does that make sense? Okay, so in this book, uh, Dallas Wilder points out, he says, Screwtape has a wonderful comment on the effect of failing to use the body in our religion. He advises Wormwood to have his, his man remember or to think that he remembers the parrot-like nature of his prayers in childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vague dismiss a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. One of their poets, speaking of Coldridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knee, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulge and, and indulge a sense of supplication. That is the exhort, exact sort of prayer we want. And since it bears a superficial re- resemblance to the prayers of silence as practiced by those who are, who are very far advanced in the enemy's service, Clever and lazy patients can be taken in, taken in by it for quite a long time. Watch what he says here. At the very least, they can be persuaded that their bodily position makes no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their soul. Whatever their bodies do affects their soul. 
if you stay in this place of believing, here's what he's saying. If you stay in this place of believing that only my thought life has to be devoted to the Lord and it never impacts the behaviors of your body, you are right in the trap the enemy wants you. Because you think believing is a mental exercise when believing has to be a practical behavior. That's what James says. Faith without works is dead. If you say, man, Stephen, I believe that spending time with Jesus is the thing that's going to sustain me. I believe it with all my heart. But you never take time to get on your knees and seek his face on a regular basis. You don't really believe that. You believe it's a good idea, but what you believe is in the practice of your life. Well, Stephen, I believe the word of God is infallible. King James Version 1611, infallible word of God, I believe it. When was the last time you memorized a few of those verses? Well, you know, I'm just so busy. When was the last time you read through a book of the Bible and studied it? If it's the infallible word of God, do you open your Bible every day and get the infallible word of God? Well, you know, just so busy, you know. Just. It's a belief that never translates into behavior. And so you can live in the deception of I can believe all the right things and that's salvation. But that's not the way. The way is that belief has to translate into behavior. Now, we're not attaining righteousness by behavior but we're letting the righteousness we've already attained be demonstrated in the behavior we have, right? Let me move forward here as we wrap this up. What are, the, what is, are these disciplines of the way? And I'm going to po point them out to you. And there's, there's many more, I'm sure, but these are the ones that I've kind of seen evidenced in my life that have been effective, evidences of the way. First one, committing to fasting. I know, well, let's get the hard one out of the way. Committing to fasting. We're starting, I started yesterday a 21-day fast. You can start today if you're like me and you forgot. 21-day fast. Listen, there's something <laughs> about saying no to your body that empowers your spirit. And it's not mystical, it's practical. There's something about saying no to your body that empowers your spirit. Now listen, the body is not evil. We're not trying to punish ourselves. We're not this monastic order of, you know, beating ourselves to death. But what we're saying, thank you, sir, what we're saying is my body is not going to control my behavior. My spirit is. I'm going to control my behavior, and I'm going to subject it to the lordship of Jesus, and I'm going to learn how to subject my will in the discipline of fasting. I've got a little story for you that, uh, about that at the end here. Natural hunger creates emotional weakness. Fasting reveals the power of the body over your behavior. Fasting reveals what? The power of your body over your behavior. But when you begin to fast, the first day, everybody's, everybody just get ready for this, right? You have this emotion called hangry. It's when you're hungry and angry and they put together, right? Right? Guys tend to do hangry a little bit more, but, you know, we're not letting the women off the hook either, right? When you fast, that's the day when your friend says, let's go eat a Papados, and you're like, that's the day when they bring donuts to work and the good kolaches that you like. You know what I'm saying? The day you chose to fast, that's the day. Just know it's going to happen. It's not a mystery. The devil is a punk, and you just need to get ready for that. 
You know what I'm saying? Well, you haven't told anybody you're fasting, and all of a sudden, that's the day the wife cooks the best meal. It's like, oh, we're going to have a great old meal tonight. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Sometimes you all like me. We'll just postpone the fast. We'll start tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And guess what happens tomorrow? All the people call, right? <laughs> when the flesh is weak, the Spirit of God in you can give you clear direction. Whatever fast you choose these 21 days that we're about to enter into, listen. I'm going to give you a warning, ready? If you're in a physical condition where fasting is not an option, you need to talk to your doctor of the best way to do it or a medical professional or somebody. Don't do this, try to kill yourself. If you die at the end of the fast, it's no benefit to anybody, right? So move with some wisdom, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to do a, a Daniel fast, which means what? No meat, right? I'm going to do vegetables and coffee, I think that's <laughs> I'm going to fast. Right? But pick a fast that's good for you. Some of you, listen, you need to fast social media. You just need to get off of it. Right? Some of you need to fast TV. Some of you need to fast watching movies. Some of you need whatever you've... And listen, I, I've heard this a lot of times, and I'm not sure I agree with it. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord to tell me what to do. No. You pick it. You know what I'm saying? You pick it. You say, hey, I'm going to fast this. So my kids have fasted. They didn't come to me and say, God, I feel like God's telling me. They just did it. I'm like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my flesh down. I'm going to fast. Right? There's many ways of fasting. There's a 21-day fast, the Daniel fast. There's some people that I know, and I did it for many years of my life. I'd fast one day a week. I'd fast every Tuesday. Right? Where I would, in the times that I'm fasting, it's not just starving yourself, but that time that you would be eating, you set it aside to go pray read God's word, and hear his voice. If you just starve yourself, that's called starvation, not fasting, right? And starvation has slight benefits of, you know, weight loss, tiredness, whatever. But fasting is I take the time that I would normally eat and I seek the face of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so here's what I would do. And, and I'm not saying you should brag about it, but I always help get people to help me with the fast. Like I'll tell my wife, so she saves that meal for another day. You know what I'm saying? I'll tell, tell the kids. So they're not like, Dad, why aren't we going to eat anymore? You know, are we out of money? No, I'm just fasting, right? Okay. So tell people that you're fasting. The this, this second discipline, and this is a tough one for me too. Listen, I'm telling you all my weaknesses, right? Take a weekly Sabbath rest. Now listen, I'm going to tell you this is hard because I'm a workaholic. I work while I'm sleeping. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm thinking of ways to... Efficiently do things better. If you don't take Sabbath rest, your body will die. And not in a good way. Right? You have to take Sabbath rest. Now, Sunday's the day work for, of work for me also. So I try to take Fridays as my Sabbath rest. That means I'm at home, and when I'm on Sabbath rest, I'm not just sitting around floating in the, you know, meditative position. I'm doing stuff, but it's not work. You know, I'm at the house, I'm having fun with the kids, or I'm working in the yard. As long as it's not what I do for a living... It's rest. Does that make sense? I don't answer phone calls to, to, to take care of church stuff, and I don't work. I'm resting. And I take that time when I would normally be working to spend some time with the Lord. Let's just be honest. I get to sleep in. I get to relax a little bit, but I have to have Sabbath rest. There's so many people that, that have not taught this discipline, and what happens is over time, your lifetime gets cut short with poor health because you pushed your body too hard, right? 
You know, one of the things that God told Israel when they went into captivity is, you have not kept my Sabbaths. And so we added up all the Sabbath years that they passed up, 70 years, that's how long they were in captivity. Because the land needed its rest. The agricultural system that God put them on, they didn't give the land rest every seven years. So he said, we're going to let the land rest. Why? Because their children's children's children would have nothing if they didn't take a break. Right? And so Sabbath rest is a great discipline that you need to start putting into your life. The addiction to a fast-paced life causes us not to realize the eternal weight or at times the destruction of our behavior. When I get by myself on the Sabbath day and I stop and I think, it's the time the Lord can speak to me and say, hey, let's talk about these things. Good things, bad things, let's talk about these things. I got to move faster here. Resting for a day puts the brake on our agendas and makes us hear and see what we are doing and how we are working with or against God's desires. If you skip the Sabbath to make more money, you're placing more confidence in your ability to provide financially than obeying God's voice. Let me say that again. If you skip Sabbath, day of Sabbath, to make more money, you're placing more confidence in your ability to provide financially than in obeying God's voice. And that is what it is. Right? I'm going to tell you two stories. You're with me. When I first started my first job um, out in, in, in the secular world, I was in high school, I was, <coughs> excuse me, in college, just starting in college, and I was a youth pastor, and uh, I, went, I lived like walking distance from a McDonald's right there in Bridge City on Highway 87, that little McDonald's there, right? And I went in the first day, because I'm a weird person, I went in, and I sat in the, ordered something, sat down, and just watched the staff work and the crew work, and it's McDonald's, I mean, it's not like super complicated, but I didn't want to be an idiot when I got interviewed, so I watched what was happening, I was watching the register, watching, you know, the cooks in the back, and I watched the, the shift manager walk around, and what she was doing, and so what I was assessing in my little 19-year-old mind is, what job do I want, right? And so I sat there, and, and then I got up and left, and and on my way out, I asked for an application, and I got one, I filled it out, and immediately they set up an interview. Of course, McDonald's, everybody can get a job there, right? And so I went home, took up the, took up the application, filled it out, brought it back. Next day, and I remember the manager, uh, we set up the appointment for the interview. Her name was Teresa, great lady. And I was a little bit arrogant. I know you found that hard to believe, a little arrogant. Um, and we were sitting in the interview, and, you know, she went through all the, the formal questions of, you know, which, whatever you ask. And at the end, she said, okay, tell me what, why you want, what you want to do here and what your dreams are. And I was just, without blinking an eye, I said, I want your job. <laughs> and she looked at me and she graciously just smiled at this 19-year-old idiot, right? And she was like, okay, you can have it if you're willing to pay the price for it. Uh, sure. And so she said, I'm here seven days a week. And I'm usually open the store every day and I leave around two o'clock. And I just, I could sense the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking in my little peon brain, right? And I looked at her and I said, not in a defiant way, very graciously, I said, I hear what you're saying, but I can't work Sundays and Wednesday nights because I go to church. And she looked at me just as serious as she could be. She wasn't upset. She just said, then you'll never be a manager. I thought, the bet is on. <laughs> Challenge accepted. I started on my birthday in January of 1997. In one year, because I resigned on my birthday in 98, in one year, I went through seven pay raises and was a shift manager at two stores. Never worked a Sunday. 
never worked a Wednesday. Seven pay raises. I went to work early every day. I worked hard. I did my job right. I read all the manuals. I studied all the tests. When I got ready to leave a year from the day, exactly one year, they were making plans to send me to Chicago, to Hamburger University, to get my bachelor's degree in business. And I just felt the Lord saying, McDonald's is not your future. Now, I'm not telling you that bragging. I'm just telling you, if you make it a priority to take the Sabbath rest and time with the church that God has put you in, there is a reward. But listen, there's a chance. There's a chance not everybody's going to agree with you. You know how I did it? When I was booked on Sundays, I'd call some other people. I'd shift around stuff. I'd make it happen. I'd work extra shifts for them, whatever it took, because this is a priority in my life, right? This is a priority. And I can tell you the blessings of God were on my life. I wasn't the smartest cookie in the batch. I was probably the darkest cookie in the batch. Not the smartest cookie in the batch, right? But I worked, and God blessed it. A couple of years later, I got a great job uh, working for Verizon Wireless, the nation's best, most reliable service, right? Um, and I remember going in, and when I got hired on, I got hired on part-time. And it's a sales job. All you guys that have done sales before, guess what happens in sales jobs? Your paycheck is a direct reflection of how much stuff you sell, right? I mean, we got an hourly rate, but it's commissions that really make the bread and butter. And so I remember going into work, and I was, I was supposed to only work 30 hours a week. You know what I'm saying? And so that's how the, the agreement was when I got hired. And I was end up working 40, 50, 60 hours a week easily. And I was single, didn't, wasn't married yet at the time. Uh, yeah, I wasn't married yet. Kind of just keep it going. Or maybe I was, I can't remember. It was such a blur. It was a lot of work, <laughs> right? And uh, I remember, yeah, I was married. I remember working 60, 50, 60 hours a week during Christmas holidays, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I mean, we worked like 70, 80 hours. We never left the store. Like, they brought in pizza every day, you ate lunch there, you ate breakfast every morning, you ate dinner every day, and you went home at, late at night. You know what I'm saying? All the sales reps were on the floor all the time. And somewhere in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit was like, you need to stop. And I was like, uh, I can't. Everybody's working 70 hours a week. How am I going to stop? And he's like, you need to stop because you're killing yourself. You're not taking any Sabbath rest. You've forgotten everything, Right? And so I went to my manager, and, I, and she's a sweet lady, man, probably one of the best managers I've had. Her name was Heather. I sat down with Heather, and I was like, listen, I signed up for 30 hours a week. That's all I can do. And she was like, well, you know, gave me the usual spiel, and just kind of said, okay, well, as long as you hit your quota, which was really high, you're fine. Now, part-timers had a quota. Full-timers had a quota, right? So mine was a little bit less. And the moment I made the adjustment, it was hard because there's part of me wants to get to work early, work a little harder, stay a little late, work a little harder. But I remember saying, no, I'm going to hit 30 hours. I'm going to stop. Man, that year, and I only worked at Verizon for two years, but that year, every month, I blew out the quota for the full-time people working 30 hours a week. Every conversation, this is how it happened. A customer would come in. You know, they go on the rotation. They come to me, and the Holy Spirit would begin to tell me what to say. I had an edge in. He would tell me what questions to ask. And I'm not saying in a manipulative sense. He would just say stuff like, ask him about their grandkids. Like, hey, you got some grandkids? And we would have this great discussion. They would tell. And then they were just so happy with the experience. My numbers started blowing up. So I remember, I remember very clearly, 
there was, toward the end of my time there, the, they had these weekly sales meetings, you know. So they get all the sales reps together. And they tell you the same thing every sales meeting, sell more stuff, you know. And then, so they're like, Stephen, what are you doing that's so different? And I was like, well, it's really simple. Before I meet with a client, I ask God what to say. <laughs> and he tells me, and that's it. And I work 30 hours a week. Not very motivating, I know, but it worked. Here's what I'm saying. I honored this concept of obeying God's voice and taking a Sabbath rest, and God began to bless, right? Let's move on here. You still with me? Taking a week- weekly Sabbath. Um, the next one, making time for prayer and reading God's word daily. And this is one that everyone has heard probably way more times than we want to hear, but it worked. The reason you hear it is because... It works. Listen, I've had, I got into this habit a few months, and I had to break it, but it's so easy to wake up in the morning, reach for your iPhone, and check Facebook and Instagram. You know what I started doing? Roll over, grab my bo- phone, open up my Bible app, and I start reading. Every morning, I read a Proverbs when I'm in bed, right? And then in addition to that, then I have the time that I go sit with the Lord, and I'm praying, and I'm reading through whatever book of the Bible, and I'm reading. Listen, I have to turn off all the devices because that's when everybody's going to text you. Hey, let's do this. Let's do that. This, we forgot this. And, you know, that's when everybody's going to text you. So you got to turn that thing off. And I have to set aside time. I go into my office, shut all the doors, lock all the doors, and I have to spend time with the Lord. And yes, you're going to get interrupted every once in a while, but it's okay. But you set that time. In the seasons of my life where I've woke up early and sought the face of God from like 6 to 7 o'clock, in the morning, those are the seasons where I felt like the Lord blessed me the most and I was growing the most. But daily, taking the time to read God's word and spend time in prayer. Okay, and I wish I could expand on that, but we're running out of time. The next thing, be faithful to engage with this community of believers. Now, I'm talking to you guys here. If you're watching online, you go to another church, your community of believers. Be faithful to engage this community of believers. Now, these are disciplines that the early church did that gave them the power and the grace to bring the gospel to the world. This was the way in which Jesus taught his disciples to behave, right? Be faithful to engage with this community of believers. Let me kind of tell you what that looks like. Make it a priority to connect with other believers. You must make the plan to spend time with those who share the same faith you do. Listen, the 45 minutes or an hour or two hours that you're here at church does not community. This is not church community. This is me teaching you the word of God or Pastor Lloyd teaching you the word of God and you're listening and receiving and you're hopefully understanding and you're going to go home and make some changes. But this is not community. Community happens, church community happens if you get here early and you spend some time talking with somebody or you stay here late after church and you talk a little bit with somebody. Better idea, not during the fast obviously, after church, make plans to go out and spend some time with families in the church, right? That's community, right? Make plans to spend time with people in the church. The Bible says, Acts chapter 2, verse verse 42, I believe, it says that they, the church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer, and in fellowship. That's what sustained the church. Especially now, I'm going to hit this and move on, Especially now when people feel so isolated because of diseases and COVID and this, you have to make it a priority to fellowship. You do. 
you have to make it a priority. Uh, uh, you know, a couple of, well, a couple, more than a couple of weeks ago, I got COVID, got sick, <clears throat> had to quarantine. I was really surprised how depressed I got not being around people because I'm an introvert and I thought, I'm going to enjoy this. When you're sick and alone, it's not as fun. So after coming on the tail end of the uh, 14 days of quarantine, man, I was just really just depressed. You know what I'm saying? Just depressed. I'm up and around the house, can't go anywhere, can't do anything, can't play anywhere, and I was depressed. And so maybe a week passed, and I'm moping around my depression, and I was like, Lord, how do I get out of this? And he says, you haven't been around anybody. That's the problem. Just find a need and go fix it. So I called a buddy of mine who we'd been at his house a couple of days prior to that and uh, saw that he was doing some work around his house, and I said, hey, listen, I'm just bored out of my head, and I need some something to do, so I'm going to come over to your house and do some work. So I got my chainsaw, I got my, he had a tree that he didn't want to cut down and, and one chopped up. So I just took all my boys, you know, it's great about having boys, it's a workforce with you, you know what I'm saying? Took all the boys, we went over there and we chopped up that tree. We had a great time. On the way there, I get a text from another buddy, he's like, hey, let's hang out. And I said, oh yeah, let's hang out. Meet me over at this house, we're cutting down a tree together. We cut down that, I mean, if you want to hang out with me, we're going to do a little work. That's just the way that it rolls, you know what I'm saying? And that, so that one project became a two-day event of just hanging out with these guys and their families. And at the end of that two days, I thought, man, this is really good. What is it? It's the fellowship of the saints. We have to intentionally make plans. Now, listen, I'll be honest. Sometimes I make plans at the last minute, and people can't do that. You have to plan ahead, right? You have to say, okay, I'm going to make plans. This Sunday, I'm going to go hang out with this person after church or Wednesday before service. Make plans. You know, a great way to get in a community of believers is join a small group here at the church, right? If you're a small group leader, stand up real quick. Are they here? Small group leaders, stand up, stand up, stand up. Hey, these are the guys to find, right? Get in a small group. There's more of them. Give them a big hand. You need to get in community. You need to get, and I'm not talking just the church, I'm talking the body of believers to get into your life because that's where you could have those discussions that you're like, who do I talk to this about? That's where you can spend time with people. And God can, listen, speak to you through them. It doesn't always have to come from a pulpit, right? I'm not saying everything they say is God's word. I'm just saying you get the discussions out, okay? You still with me? The next thing, man, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. Choosing to be financially generous. We know about tithing, but tithing has to be balanced with good stewardship of funds. This was a discipline of the early church. They brought everything they had to the feet of the apostles, and they distributed to the needs of the saints as was necessary. Listen, we can talk about money a lot. I'm an economics major. I can talk about money for a long time. But here's the end of the bottom line. You have to make a plan to be generous. Listen, I tithe every week. When I get my paycheck, 10%. Before taxes, before all the stuff they deduct out, 10% goes to the Lord. You know why? Because it's honoring him. The Bible says, honor the Lord with the first of all of, our, all of your increase. And so your barns will be filled, your vats will be overflowed with wine. What does that mean? My daily sustenance is going to take care of, and even the luxuries in life God will take care of. I have to tithe 10%. There's no scriptural doctrine that you can find that exempts you from tithing to the Lord. Tithe. And then on top of the tithe, guess what we do? Because the Lord's put that mandate is giving offerings. Yesterday I was just doing whatever, and the Lord spoke to me about two ministries. He said, I want you to give them an offering. Yes, you got it. Not even have to pray about it. Yes, Lord, right away. You don't go broke giving when God tells you to give. Then on top of the tithing, 
I know some of y'all getting kind of, there's another one. On top of the tithing, on top of the offering, there's giving to the poor. There's giving to the poor. Listen, in my paycheck, every time, sometimes it's a little bit, it's $20 or $15, I set aside money in a separate account to give to the poor. And it builds up over time, and then sure enough, I'll run into somebody that has a financial need, whether it's in the church or outside the church, and guess what I have? Money to give, right? I have money to give. Listen, I've been doing that regardless of how much money I've made. Sometimes I remember setting aside $5 to give. But you know what? I've set it aside, so I always have something to give. Listen, that's good stewardship, and that's something God can bless because you already have a structure, a budget, of how you're going to give. If you need to know how to get on a budget, come talk to me. I'll be glad to help you. A lot of people think, well, as long as I'm tithing, everything's going to work out. No, you have to be a good steward of what you have. That's part of the way that Jesus presented to us. Right? It's part of the way. Okay, we're going to jump ahead. Ready? I'm running out of time. One phrase I want you to take away from this, among all this stuff, is the more you allow death to yourself is the only way to find yourself in Jesus. Death to yourself is the only way to find your life in Jesus. And these five disciplines that I'm telling you about, which is the way of salvation, how people flesh out following Jesus, they can be tools that you can put into your life this year that will move your spiritual formation, your growth with the Lord throughout this year. Five things. Commit to fasting. Take a weekly Sabbath, rest. Make time for prayer and reading God's word daily. It's part of what we're doing is the YouVersion app. Download the Old and New Testament reading plan. If you want to do that one or do something else, but I'm just telling you, have something you go to regularly. Number four, be faithful to a community of believers. Last thing, choose to be financially generous. Choose to be financially generous. As we wrap up this morning, Grace, can you come help me out? As we wrap up this morning, I'm putting the challenge out there to you this morning. We can go, listen to me, another year, and you and I can just hope that God does something great, keep doing the same thing that I'm doing, go to church, you know, when it's convenient, work myself to death, enjoy a good life, get a little vacation time here, a little pleasure here, a little and just kind of kind of meander my way through 2021 and at the end of 2021 realize I didn't grow any. You can do it. You're not going to hell for that. But you're not moving any closer to the identity of who God is in you. The nature, the calling that you've been given to fulfill. Or you can look at this way that Jesus offered of dying to self. Because really all five of those elements that I'm telling you about this morning are disciplines to bring death to the carnal nature that you have. You're not a bad person. You're a righteous son of God, daughter of God, who has to work with the Holy Spirit to destroy the carnal nature. And the more of yourself that dies, the more of Christ's nature can come out. I wish I had time to really extrapolate these disciplines. And you can get the book that I've kind of got some of these from, Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. But you have to get to a place where you're saying, I'm going to do some things different this year, not just whims for 10 days, five days, but this whole year, I'm going to set aside a day to fast and pray. 
I'm going to start on this 21-day fast. I'm going to set aside my finances in a budgeted way to not just splurge on myself when I want, but I'm going to learn how to tithe. I'm going to give offerings. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to put those things as a priority in my finances. I'm going to get to a place where I'm opening God's word every day and I'm reading the scriptures. I'm going to get to a place where I'm spending time praying daily. Not just for my needs, but God, what's on your heart? I'm going to make time to be faithful to this community of believers. Not just during church time. Yes, that's necessary. But also go the extra mile. It's inconvenient. I get it. Bringing people into your house. You go into their house. Scared of the roaches, maybe. I don't know. But I'm going to find people to engage with. Because this is a discipline. This is a part of the way that Jesus offered. There's no condemnation here tonight. Some of us, you're like me. You spent years of your life meandering through how do I follow Jesus in a practical sense. Listen, here's five practical ways that are proven from the earliest church, the first century church to today. These are proven ways by which God brings his way of living to us. I wish I had time to go through the church history of how these disciplines were lost. It's fascinating. But the greatest revivals that shaped our culture and our church today, they were born out of a return to these principles. Two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, reintroduced this way. They called it Methodism. This method of following Jesus. This morning, I believe Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. This moment, is, this morning as we wrap up, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I don't want you to just make an emotional decision. Oh, I'm going to do it, Stephen. I'm going to do all of it. But I want you to hear this. Some of you might need to go back and watch the video again. Say, God, how do I put these disciplines into my life? How do I put these in my life? And then make a commitment. Commit with us these next 21 days to fast to pray, to seek God's face, to set aside time to be devoted and read God's word. Listen, it's only going to change if we change something that we're doing. It's not going to change if we keep doing what we've always done. That's foolishness. Why don't you stand with me as we close out this morning? Just where you're standing, here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we wrap up in prayer this, this morning. I feel the Holy Spirit touched a lot of points, a lot of things that we could think about. And you need to set aside some time this week. Okay, Stephen, every morning I'm going to wake up at this time, or every evening I'm going to set aside this time to sit and think about these passages, these scriptures. Maybe listen to the message again. And I'm not saying that to promote myself. I'm just saying we need to hear what God is saying to us as a church. How do I change the way of my life to look like the way that Jesus offered to me? to live so you scan through the Old Testament the New Testament you see that the men of God had these disciplines put in their life chose them fasting prayer generosity giving of their time and energy they chose these things solitude getting in the face of God 
every day and it shaped who they were. Lord, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we hear your voice. We know this way is not easy, but it's a way that you've given to us and there's grace to walk this out. And Lord, as we as a church commit under the direction of Pastor Lloyd, Pastor Leslie, Lord, these next 21 days to fast and to pray and to seek your face. Lord, give us the sustenance, the stamina, the grace to implement into our lives these disciplines. Father, we wanna hear your voice. We wanna be people changed. We wanna humble ourselves saying, we're not gonna keep doing the same thing, expecting you to do the work and us to just hope. We want your work work through us. Lord, this morning we yield ourselves to your voice. And Lord, I pray for great grace over us as a church as we set out in this first discipline of fasting. Lord, that you would change hearts, our heart, change our pathways of thinking, change our false belief systems, our broken ways of functioning. Cause us to be a people who are stirred because we want to find you. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.